Okay, so everybody know what this is? This is a catch box, and if you speak into the catch box, everybody will be able to hear you. So we're going to throw this around uh, as, that's why it's called a catch box. It's meant to be thrown, uh, guard your coffee and whatnot. Uh, but um, who'd like to start us off about, why are you here? All right, there's a first hand. Uh, that's because I would have hit your coffee. I'm curious and I'm just excited. I'm ready. Okay. Curious about what? Oh. Any particular question? No, all of it. All of it. Okay. That's a good so you start. Be good. Okay. Who else? Hi, I'm Cindy, and um, same thing. Our community group has been studying Revelations, and it's my turn to kind of teach on it. Awesome. So this is Where are you? Timing. Where are you in the book? <laughs> well, we watched your video. Okay. And all the way through it, we all still have a lot of questions. All right. So um, it's my turn, and we're just beginning. Okay. Monday will be our first. So you'll be on Revelation Perfect. 1. Yes. All right. Yes. So. That's a great place to start. Yes, ma'am. I'm throwing it this time. Um, I guess I've noticed, like, you know, it says in the Bible, there will be lots of flooding, and people will be lovers of selves. And you see that a lot on social media and with Harvey and different floods going on. So, Okay. Um, I mean, can't you just see things lining up in history that uh, um, make you go, whoa, could this be the time? And you know, uh, the Apostle Paul, you want to toss it back to him? Thought it was going to happen in his time. Yes, sir. Hey, Bobby. I'm Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm actually... Uh, strong believer, but I'm not educated on the end times, I feel like. You're not? Uh, I, I don't feel like I'm as educated as I should okay. be about the end times. Good. Frankly, my, my dad, uh, in your prayer, you mentioned um, to be aware, but don't um, become obsessed to exclude other things. I feel like my dad is also a strong believer, but he's kind of obsessed with this right now. So that's kind of all he wants to talk about. So I need to be better equipped to kind of well, know if good. he's speaking truth or feel like if he's a little overboard on some things and, Hey, you know, balance is important in the Christian life. And if we ignore uh, the book of Revelation, if we ignore the end times, that's not going to serve us well. Um, but at the same time, if we go to the point that, hey, this is all we can talk about, that's not going to serve us well either. Although I will point out, um, this is free. That you didn't have to pay for this part, okay? Um, think about the book of 1 Thessalonians, okay? If you know that book, um, Paul had talked about, even though he'd spent just a comparatively brief time uh, in starting the church at Thessalonica, um, he had already talked to them about the end times, and he had to go back and clarify some of the things that um, he had taught them because they had been told by others uh, something that was not, not correct. So even in his early um, or short time with a particular body, he was not shy about talking about the end times. And if you want to read about the rapture, probably the, the best, most classic passage on the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4. So hopefully today we'll help you, uh, Chris. Yes, sir. Uh, we'll help uh, Chris and all of you uh, find a balance between uh, the two. Anyone else? One last one? Okay. 
All right, watch out. This is uh, this one could be dangerous. I see a I see a row of stuff I could knock over. I'm Corey, and about two years ago, I did a Bible study on heaven with a friend who um, was dying of cancer and learned so much about it. And she was so excited um, to be in heaven and end times. And her end time came a lot quicker than ours. But it opened my eyes like, man, she is a believer and she knows where she's going and she is excited. Um, And so started thinking about end times and whether that looks like our life's end time or the earth's end times. And so I've just had um, a desire to learn more about that and what that looks like. um, Because there's there's joy in that. It's going to be a great time. There's, you know, the, the things I prayed, there's hope in having an understanding about what awaits us. And then there's also motivation to go tell others. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if point number one is that Jesus is coming back, uh, point two, A and two B, is that he gives us hope and motivation to tell others. Okay? Um, so, let's dive in. You know, um, maybe there are some bigger eschatology sort of questions, but these are uh, four big ones. So when is Jesus coming back? Hey, we all want to know that, okay? Right? Um, And uh, um, we all need to know about what the events of the end times are. And I've picked 14 events of um, the end times that we're going to go over. And you will walk away with an understanding of these 14 events. And then if you picked up the handouts, um, then you will also have a little timeline that is my best guess on how these things might play out, okay? Watermark uh, um, approaches the end times from a uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view, okay? We'll explain that in just a little bit. On the other side is a a timeline of Daniel's 70 weeks. Uh, And that vision Daniel was given in Daniel 9, we're also going to talk about because that kind of sets the framework for what we're going to do. And then you have all my slides right here. And uh, um, if you'll turn over to the very last slide, in case I forget to do this. It's a slide about how can I understand Revelation. I've written a little uh, introductory study guide in which there is uh, maybe one, maybe two original thoughts, uh, and the rest of it is standing on the shoulders of a bunch of uh, uh, commentators and scholars that I respect. Uh, And I pull together uh, what hopefully will walk you through chapter by chapter and almost verse by verse of an overview of the book of Revelation, okay? And so if you want that, I'm going to put the burden on you to reach out. Just shoot me an email at bcrotty at watermark.org, and I will send you a a digital copy of it that, you know, some folks have printed out and whatnot, but um, I have just the uh, PDF version of it that I'll be happy to send you, okay? And while I'm talking about resources... um, Let me talk quickly about these books because these are things that you can uh, um, come up and peruse. Uh, Happy for you to look through them and whatnot. Um, If you would leave them behind, I need these. I use them a bunch. Uh, But the first one is called The Footsteps of the Messiah by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Uh, 
Dr. Fruchtenbaum is a Messianic Jew, and he has probably what I think is the best uh, overview of how uh, the Old Testament plays in to the end times. Um, but he walks through uh, all the events, walks through uh, the book of Revelation, and this is a great compendium overview of the end times. The next book I would show you are actually a couple of them. Um, there is a uh, Dallas Seminary adjunct professor named Mark Hitchcock. Mark is a uh, um, pastor in Edmond, Oklahoma, and he has written a bunch of stuff about the end times and about the book of Revelation, and he teaches it at, at DTS. Um, coincidentally, he is the... Um, high school classmate of Kyle Thompson, one of our, um, used to be an elder, now is going to be the shepherd, a campus shepherd at uh, um, the Frisco campus, okay? And uh, um, so Mark's book on the end times, his big book is called The End, and it walks through the end times from A to Z. It is, you know, a great encyclopedia, if you will, on the end times, and he has distilled from that a great little book that really puts the cookies on the lower shelf. It's called 101 Answers to the Most Asked Questions About the End Times. Um, it's divided up into bite-sized things that, you know, you can, uh, if you have a question, you can go look it up and read that little chunk. Or if you just read through it, it's easy to read through. And this is one of the best, quickest overviews of the end times. The last couple of books I have up here are uh, commentaries uh, that are devoted solely to uh, uh, the book of Revelation. Um, this is Mark's counterpart to the uh, 101 answers uh, about the end times. This is 101 um, answers to the questions about the book of Revelation. And he goes through chapter by chapter. Uh, and then finally, here is a great little commentary written by uh, one of the uh, preeminent American scholars, biblical scholars, Dr. Charles Ryrie. You know, some of you may be using the Ryrie Study Bible, uh, but this is a great little overview. It's in the Everyman Bible Commentary series, and uh, uh, I love these uh, commentaries. Why do you think I love them? They are short, okay? And so he gives you all the good stuff without going off into all the scholarly speculation. And so this is a solid overview of uh, the book of Revelation. So those are some resources if you're looking for some things to uh, dive deeper. Those will cost you money. My book is free. So uh, start where you like as the Spirit leads you. Okay? So when's Jesus coming back? What are the events? We'll also talk about what judgments await people, okay? That's one we all ought to be uh, interested in, okay? Um, if you are a believer in Christ, then uh, we know from Romans 8 that there is now no condemnation that awaits us, okay? But there is an evaluation. What's that evaluation called? What's that? Judgment seat of Christ, there you go. Uh, and we'll talk about uh, what is involved at the judgment seat of Christ, what scriptures pertain to it, 
uh, and it'll be one of those 14 things that we'll talk about. But it will be an evaluation, like, you know, uh, Watermark just finished going through all our staff evaluations. And, you know, there was nothing to fear in those staff evaluations. Um, in the evaluation, I didn't hear a thing I hadn't already heard before. Um, but uh, we got to celebrate, you know, good things, and we uh, um, uh, had some areas that need some development. And uh, then we just had a chance to celebrate uh, what had been accomplished during the course of a year. And um, as we stand before the Lord, and I think that uh, uh, a correct understanding of Scripture says that we all, as believers in Christ, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll have a chance to give an account uh, for the work that we've done. Okay? We'll talk more about that before I get off on that. Okay, and uh, uh, then finally, we'll uh, um, have a little chance to uh, talk about what will heaven be like. If you want to read about uh, uh, heaven, probably the best uh, place to read about heaven is in Revelation 21 and 22. Those two chapters are devoted to the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Okay? Um, any questions about the big questions? All right, so let's dive in. And let's start with uh, where we are uh, as a church. Let me just read this. This is right out of the Watermark Doctrinal Statement. It says, We believe in the personal imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the church. Okay? Now, as soon as I say church... That's a key that, hey, we're talking about something beside the second coming, okay? This event, commonly called the rapture, will be followed by great tribulation on earth and will culminate in the visible and bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth, commonly called the second coming. Boom. That's where we put our stake in the ground. You know, we hold loosely our view of the, the rapture. We put our stake in the ground on the fact that Jesus is, in fact, coming back. So it's commonly called the second coming, uh, and in that return, he will come to rule the nations and establish his millennial kingdom. And then there are a bunch of passages, okay? And you see those uh, terms that I've highlighted in white, rapture, tribulation, second coming, millennial kingdom. We'll talk about each one of those terms, okay? And then next, the next... Uh, section of the doctrinal statement deals with the eternal state. And uh, it reads, we believe the souls of believers in Jesus Christ do at death immediately pass into his presence and there remain with him until the resurrection of our earthly bodies at his coming for the church when our souls and imperishable bodies shall be with him forever in glory. We believe the souls of unbelievers remain after death in constant misery in Hades until the final judgment of the great white throne at the close of the millennium when soul and body reunited shall be cast into the lake of fire, not to be annihilated, but to be punished with everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. And I don't know about y'all, uh, but I read that and that is a sobering wake-up call. And, you know, there may be somebody sitting in this room right now who uh, uh, is 
evaluating, uh, considering the claims of Christ. And, um, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, there will be consequences to a decision to uh, reject Christ. But, you know, one thing we can take comfort in is the fact that time after time, he is making available the opportunity for each of us to trust in Christ. And uh, I think we can say with confidence and assurance that nobody is going to be in this lake of fire situation who has not chosen it repeatedly for themselves. Okay? And we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about this. Um, but of these terms that uh, you see here, um, whoops. Okay, so what words or terms in the doctrinal statement uh, did you see that you just go, I'm not real sure what that is? Anybody? Millennial kingdom? Okay, that's a good one. Uh, the short answer to that is that after Christ returns, he will set up uh, what is commonly called in Scripture his millennial kingdom. Millennium because uh, um, Revelation 20 says that it will last for a thousand years. It says it six times in that one chapter, a thousand years. And so this kingdom will be one in which he, Jesus physically reigns on earth uh, on the throne of David in final fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He'll be in uh, Jerusalem and will be physically present here on earth. Okay? We'll talk more about that. So that's millennial kingdom. Thanks for asking that one. Yes, sir. It is. Uh, Bema is simply uh, a word that described uh, what was used as a Roman judgment seat. Paul appeared in the book of Acts before the Roman Bema, okay? And so sometimes it's called Bema just because that's uh, the name of it in the Greek. Um, we typically call it the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Yes, sir. Great white throne judgment is That's correct. Our understanding, my understanding of the great white throne judgment you can read about it in Revelation 20. Uh, it starts in uh, about verse 11, uh, 11 through 15. And I believe that it will be only for unbelievers. Uh, and it will be a judgment not of sin, but of their works. Okay? We'll talk more about that later. Because I saw Sean cock his head like, what? Um, well, think about it. Where were sins dealt with? At the cross. Um, you know, Christ died for the sins of the, of the whole world. Okay? And you make effective in your own life that sacrifice by putting your trust in Christ. If you don't put your trust in Christ, then you are going to stand there and the Lord is you know, may look at you and go, okay, so you didn't want the sacrifice of my son. What do you have to offer in lieu of that? What is your righteousness? How does that stack up against the righteousness of Christ? And we'll see in Revelation 20 that that is not going to go well. 
okay? <laughs> That's not the, the side of history you want to be on, okay? But we don't want to be followers of Christ because we're afraid of hell. We want to be followers of Christ because he is going to change your life right now. And to have done this here gives you the opportunity to uh, enjoy a rich experience of Christ right now. And then the cherry on top will be heaven. And it's going to be a pretty good cherry on top. Okay, so we'll talk more about that. Um, any other terms uh, that you saw that you just went, nah, I'm not sure about that? Yes, sir. Why is it necessary for our souls to be completely centered with him? Okay, that's a great question. Did everybody hear that question? We've lost our catch box here. I need to get back on it. Um, Okay, so the question was, you know, why are our souls uh, uh, separated from our bodies? Okay, so when you die, what happens? Your body goes in the grave or is cremated or whatnot. Um, and what happens to your soul? Well, I think it goes to immediately be in the presence of the Lord if you are a believer in Christ. And so there will be a, a reuniting of body and soul, um, Paul writes in 1 uh, Thessalonians 4, um, at the Lord's calling for his church. One of the questions the Thessalonian believers had was, hey, we've had people die. They were undergoing intense persecution, and they had lost friends, and they were concerned about what was going to happen to uh, their friends. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, hey, you don't need to worry about that because um, at uh, the call of uh, Christ for his church, body and soul will be reunited to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And we'll talk more about that. So that's a great question to uh, ask and think about. Yes, ma'am. How does that line up with cremation? Well, you know, um, the question was how does that line up with creation? Uh, cre cremation, isn't that what I said? Cremation, okay? Um, not creation, cremation. Um, bottom line is that uh, um, I don't know how the Lord's going to pull all that back together. What about the people that got blown up in 9-11? Uh, um, so, you know, he created the world. He can put your body back together. I have confidence that he is going to be able to do the right thing. You know, um, here is my mantra for life. The Lord is good, his plan is good, and I can trust him. And that's one of those where I can't give you the physical uh, uh, answer to how he's going to do this, but I know he's good, and I know his plan is good, and he's going to do the right thing because he always does. And that's why we want that rich experience of Christ right now. Eternal life begins the moment you put your trust in Christ. Hugh? Um, I, I have read what seemed to me to be different descriptions of what hell will be like. Lake of fire is one. You know, just eternal separation. It's just nothingness and a bunch of others. Are we going to talk about that? We will. Okay. 
okay? Um, and uh, the bottom line is we're going to look at what Scripture has to say uh, because everything else is just, you know, we're, we're guessing. But let's see what Scripture itself has to say. And one of the things that uh, um, you see right here is everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. Okay? If God is good, being separated from him is going to be not good. And separated from everything else that is good. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Hades is used in the Greek um, New Testament as the word for this uh, place of separation. If you go look at Luke 16, uh, you can read the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, um, Hades is a synonym for the Old Testament word sheol, and it's the place where those who have died without a relationship with God uh, are... Uh, separated okay paradise think thief on the cross where did jesus say that the thief on the cross would be that day paradise uh, or it's also called abraham's bosom are uh, terms that describe where those who have died with a relationship with christ um, the the souls of those will go okay so shield hades same place abraham's bosom uh, paradise, same place. One not so good, one eternal good. Okay? Yes, sir? Uh, what's the difference between Hades and the lake of fire? Um, well, that's a great question. We're going to hold that one for uh, when we talk about the lake of fire. Okay? So don't let me forget. All right? Um, let's keep going. Feel good about these uh, terms? You've got a sense of what the rapture is? It's the return of the Lord for his church. Uh, we'll take a look at it when we look at uh, that particular event. Um, tribulation. Someone give me a definition of uh, tribulation. You've got the f mic. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> What's the definition of the tribulation? Yes, sir. It's the seven-year time period between the rapture and when uh, Christ comes back. Yeah, um, that's uh, a good working definition right there. That uh, it's a, a seven-year period. We'll talk about how we get that idea. Um, one um, um, tidbit for you is that it's not in the Book of Revelation. Nowhere in the Book of Revelation does it uh, mention seven years for describing the tribulation. We actually get that where? Yeah, from Daniel 9, his vision of 70 weeks. Uh, another description of the tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. We'll talk about that. Okay? Um, yes, sir. 70th. It's the vision of 70 weeks, and the tribulation period is that last week, that last seven-year period. Don't think week of, like, days. Think week of years. Okay? Yes, sir. Where's the judgment of Christians? That is the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, uh, we'll talk about, and I'll suggest a placement for that 
um, in uh, just a couple of minutes if I stop um, preaching and uh, get back to uh, covering the topic here, okay? Um, all right, so when we talk about the rapture, the return of Christ for his church, there are three predominant views, okay? The first view says that he will return before the tribulation period. All of them relate to uh, the tribulation period, that seven-year period. The second view is the mid-trib or mid-tribulation rapture picture that he will come back for his church at the middle of the tribulation. And the last one says that he will come back at the end of the tribulation. Uh, that, you know, we'll basically um, be taken up to meet the Lord in the air and we'll come right back with him in the second coming. That's the post-trib view. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and all those who have died in Christ, in other words, having believed in Christ from Pentecost till the uh, moment of the rapture. Okay, so the church is those folks who have put their trust in Christ um, from the time of Pentecost, day of Pentecost, uh, to um, the um, moment of the return of the Lord for his church. That's the church. Okay, it's a description, and it's different from Israel. And uh, there's a debate between scholars about, well, does the church replace Israel? And uh, um, Todd would be the first to say the church does not replace Israel. There are promises that will be fulfilled to Israel uh, in the last seven years and in the millennial kingdom uh, that are not promises for the church. Okay. Yes, sir. Correct. Um, that, you know, obviously it is a form of Israel, but um, to understand Israel, you've got to understand the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Israel uh, is the land that was, or the people who were promised a land. That land reached its um, broadest point during the lifetime of Solomon. And I think during the millennial kingdom, it will once again be established at the broadest points of the land that was uh, given to Solomon. And that will be part of the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? All right. Um, so, three views. Watermark uh, takes the first view. We believe that the Lord is coming back for his church uh, before the tribulation begins. The rapture is not the trigger event of the tribulation. It is, however, a, an event that will likely precede the beginning of the tribulation period. And we'll talk about what is the actual trigger event of this 70th week, this seven-year period called the tribulation. Okay? So, um, when we talk about Watermark being a premillennial church, it means um, our view of when the second coming occurs in conjunction with uh, the millennial kingdom. And again, you have three different uh, views. There's the premillennial view that Watermark uh, holds. There is a postmillennial view. 
that uh, Christ will return after the completion of the uh, millennial kingdom. And then there's an amillennial view that says that, hey, we're actually in the, um, you know, this period, long period. We're going to look at each one of these views, uh, but in a long period that will be getting better and better and ultimately will culminate in Christ's return. And uh, um, let's take just a second to uh, look at um, each one of those, okay? So I'm going to start with the post-millennial. And so it's a view that the kingdom of God is now being extended through, in the world through the preaching of the gospel, and that the world will eventually be Christianized, it believes that Christ will return at a long period of righteousness and peace called the millennium. Okay, and uh, um, to those guys, I'd say, hey, you apparently have not read the newspapers lately. Uh, I don't think things are getting better. I think things are getting worse. Um, and so to me, that one is too hopeful. Um, I don't think that uh, um, the world is going to get better and better. I think it's going to get worse and worse until Christ comes back to set it right. Uh, the amillennial view rejects the idea that Jesus will have a literal thousand-year physical reign on earth. And it believes that the millennium has already begun. It's identical with the current church age. It sees the church as fulfillment of biblical promises to Israel. It confuses Israel and the church. It believes that Christ will, end at, uh, will return at the end of the church age. Uh, in final judgment, and then establish a uh, permanent physical reign. And, you know, to me, gang, that is just too inconsistent because once you start spiritualizing uh, things in the text, where do you stop? It says a thousand years. We know Jesus literally fulfilled the prophecies related to his first coming. Why will he not fulfill the promises of his second coming and uh, his reign thereafter? And so uh, I think that uh, um, it uses a, an approach to Scripture that will um, lead to nothing but trouble, okay? And uh, the other part is that uh, the church is not Israel. God is not done with his people, the Jews. And he will, during the tribulation and during the millennial kingdom, ultimately fulfill his promises to both Abraham and to David. Um, we'll talk about the Davidic covenant, okay? And so premillennialism believes that Jesus' second coming will occur before his literal thousand-year reign on earth, and it uses a normal uh, or literal method of interpreting biblical passages. And that is that, hey, we ought to take uh, what Scripture says at face value unless there is a reason uh, given by Scripture uh, for interpreting something symbolically, okay? And so, um, again, it, the premillennial view consistently distinguishes Israel from the church. Uh, never in the uh, um, New Testament is the term Israel ever applied to the church. And um, it posits that we'll see the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in the coming millennial kingdom. And to one, I say, you know, like Goldilocks, I went, ah, this one's just right. Okay? So that's the approach that Watermark takes. Um, now, if you'll pull out your uh, little 
chart here. I want to walk through this Daniel 70 weeks. And if you have your Bible here, turn to uh, Daniel 9. And if you go back like you always ought to do uh, to read the context, you see that Daniel is praying when he gets this vision. Good things happen when we pray. I love what Jim Wimberly says. He says, hey, uh, when man works, man works. When man prays, God works. And that happens in uh, uh, Daniel's life. And so while he is in prayer, all of a sudden here comes uh, our favorite messenger angel, Gabriel. And Gabriel gives him this vision. And if you look at uh, Daniel 9, 24, you see it says that 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, so think about that verse. Have any of those things happened? Thoughts? Okay, here's a no. Any, do you think any of them have? Yes, ma'am. Uh, to, to atone for iniquities, what the ESV says. Um, I would agree that uh, there has been an atonement for iniquity. I think that has been fulfilled. Okay? Um, so let's just go through them one by one. Um, finish transgression. Think there's any transgression going on in the world today? Yeah. Uh, to put an end to sin? Well, that would be news to me if uh, sin was over. I've probably committed a few this morning. Um, you know, I, I don't think we've seen an end to sin. Uh, I think we have seen an atonement for iniquity. Um, have we brought in everlasting righteousness? Well, in a positional sense we have if you put your trust in Christ because he is righteousness and the great exchange is that we give him our junk and uh, he paid for it on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. So in a sense that may be, but in a physical sense, is there righteousness on earth? Not so much, okay? Um, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. I think what we can take from this is that, hey, most of this vision relates to things that are still future, okay? So that's the first clue we have. And then verse 25, 9:25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And so as you sit here and think about this, you, you've got to go, all right, well, if that had been literal weeks, then all this would have been over in, in Daniel's day. And Daniel is reading this in the context of, um, it says earlier in uh, chapter 9, he'd been reading about um, the uh, Babylonian captivity and the prophecy of Jeremiah about how long um, Israel would be in captivity to Babylon. That's discussed in Jeremiah 
and it's a, a conclusion of 70 years. So the whole context for this chapter is thinking in years. And here, when we start talking about 7 and 62 and you add those together and you get 69, you have to think in terms of weeks of years. In fact, the Hebrew literally says 77s, okay? And so it doesn't specify days or weeks or whatnot, uh, but I think it makes sense only in the context of understanding it as weeks of years. And so this gives us the beginning point of the tribulation clock, the 70th week uh, sort of clock, okay? Um, to understand the 70th week, you got to understand the first 69. And so we begin with the word to rebuild Jerusalem. And you can read about that on your own in Nehemiah 2, verses 5 through 8. That was a decree that was given by um, the Persian king Artaxerxes. And you see it right up here. Whoops. You see it right up here. Uh, let's see. You see it right There we go, right here in approximately 444 or 445 B.C. That began the start of counting down the 70 weeks, weeks of years. So 490 years we're looking at. And uh, um, scholars speculate, but they don't really know why Daniel or why Gabriel divided it up into seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, the best um, speculation they have is that it likely took a while uh, to uh, rebuild Jerusalem. And so it may have been that it took them 49 years to actually complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Okay? So you remember your um, history of Israel and whatnot? Um, Israel wanted a king. They asked for a king. We want to be like everybody else. God says, no, you don't want that. You want me to be your king. Uh, kings will oppress you. They'll tax you. They'll put your uh, women to work. They'll send your uh, men off to war. Uh, they'll take a portion of your crops and whatnot. Uh, but the Israelites said, what? We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And so who did they choose? Well, they chose Saul. Why? Why do we uh, choose uh, folks today that run for office? Because they're tall and good looking, okay? He was tall and good looking, and uh, he was a warrior. Uh, but Saul reigns. Um, the Lord really had in mind a, um, a kid, a shepherd kid named David. And so David then comes along as the second king. He's a man after God's own heart, even though he had some pretty significant failures. Uh, but the difference about David was that every time he failed, he got back up, made confession, and kept going. See Psalm 51, the Bathsheba Psalm. Okay, and so after David, uh, David says, Lord, I'm living in this palace, and you're living in a tent. I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, I love you, boy, but um, I'm not going to let you. Your hands are stained with blood. I'm going to let your son build a temple. And Solomon built the first great temple, okay? Um, but he said, David, um, I'm going to do something even better for you. I am going to um, give you an eternal throne. And your one who comes from your line will rule on that throne forever. 
the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel uh, 7, you know, verse 16 is probably the classic statement of it. And as you think about the Abrahamic covenant, you think land, seed, and blessing. As you think about the uh, Davidic covenant, think house, kingdom, and throne. Go see Luke 1, 32 and 33, where when the same Gabriel is talking with Mary and saying, hey, uh, something big's getting ready to happen in your life, he says that uh, he uses those exact same words of house, kingdom, and throne, and that uh, this son of Mary would be one who would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay? Um, and so... Um, When you add the 7 and 62, you get 69 weeks. And so from the beginning of the word to go out until it says um, uh, the coming of an anointed one, um, that is a time frame of 483 years. Uh, don't think our years. Think 30-day um, months, 360-day years. The Jewish calendar was a little different. Okay? And so the... Uh, um, Completion of the 69 weeks occurs, it says, at the coming of an anointed one. When did that happen? Palm Sunday, yeah, the triumphal entry. When Jesus is hailed as the coming Messiah, using words right out of Psalm uh, 118. Okay? So the people were proclaiming him the king. And that was uh, uh, on Sunday. On Friday, well, what are they proclaiming him as? Hey, we'd rather have Barabbas than this guy. Okay? The crowd is always fickle. Yes, sir? I'm a little confused as why we don't take the week literally. But at the end, you said why we have to take the thousand years and put it in. Okay? Well, think about uh, the weeks. If it was literal, then um, it would have all been done in Daniel's lifetime. So it can't be that. Plus, the context is uh, he's talking, it, it doesn't literally say weeks, it says sevens. So it's seven some period of time. And the only one that makes sense is that it would be weeks of years. Okay? And so that's why I'm showing you that uh, uh, if you look at the time frame up here, that we start, the clock starts ticking right here. We start the 70 weeks here. And that 69 weeks, so 483 years, will um, uh, expire between 444 B.C. and A.D. 33. Okay? Now, you look at that and go, well, no, those numbers don't quite subtract. Well, you're operating on a little different calendar. And uh, um, if you're interested about the calculation and seeing precisely why an A.D. 33 date works for the crucifixion, I have a book for you. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It was written by a Dallas seminary professor and is a fascinating look at um, a possible birth date for Christ, uh, a pretty certain calculation of his crucifixion date, and he actually walks through the calculation of Daniel's um, 70 weeks vision. Okay? So that would be a good... Uh, um, book for you to take a look at if you really want to dive into the nuts and bolts. Uh, if you're like most people, you're going to want to go, okay, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> I don't want to go calculate that. Yes, sir. 
Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Uh, it's written by Dr. Harold Honer, um, H-O-E-H-N-E-R, I believe it is, uh, and is a great little study. Um, button your chin straps. You've got to think as you read this. I think it was probably his doctoral dissertation or something like that. Uh, but uh, it is a fascinating look at um, a number of the different dates, but uh, he specifically devotes a chapter uh, to Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay, so the 483 years are over at the coming of the anointed one. Okay? Yes, sir. So then, Bobby, in Revelation, it'll be a thousand millennia. He is stated as years. It's stated as years. You know, the word there means years. Okay? Um, all right, so let's keep going. Now, look, um, if you look at uh, verse 26, we're still in Daniel 9. It says, after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off. What does that match up with in history? Well, I've given you a clue up here. That instrument of Roman torture, the cross, okay, that's when the Lord was cut off, means cut off from the land of the living, as it were. Okay, so that's an event that happens after the 69 weeks are done. And... Um, if you're thinking, you go, well, that must mean there's a gap between the finish of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, okay? Because there's another event. Let's keep reading. It says, uh, um, another one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary uh, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And so can we match that up with an event of history? Is Jerusalem, Bingo. Everybody hear that? Yeah. In AD 70, Roman legions under Titus, the 10th legion and maybe a couple others, um, invaded, you know, conquered Jerusalem. Uh, they burned the city. They uh, destroyed the temple. After uh, Titus uh, uh, slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Okay? And uh, um, so this is another event that says, hey, okay, so the crucifixion happens AD 33. Uh, most scholars either pick AD 30 or AD 33. Uh, I think uh, Honer's case is uh, uh, persuasive that it uh, was likely in AD 33. Um, so that event happens in uh, the gap between the conclusion of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, and also the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in AD 70 also happens in the gap. Well, there is a gap, and so why is that? Well, I've got it for you up here. I think that gap, put it in parentheses, it's sometimes called the great parenthesis in history because the church was a mystery to the Old Testament. They didn't know anything about the church. Okay? They thought Israel was um, the focus. Well, the church comes along, and uh, the church age, you can read about uh, what Paul says about it in Ephesians 3. And so I think the church is this gap between the um, coming of the anointed one during the uh, time when the 
Christ is cut off when he is crucified, the destruction of Jerusalem, and it will be punctuated by the rapture, by Christ coming for his church. That will be the conclusion of the church age. But that's not the start of the 70th week. Where does the 70th week start? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 27, and he, and first thing you got to do is, so who is he? Well, I think it's a reference to the prince who is to come. And I would understand that to be the Antichrist. Okay? And so uh, the he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The many, I think, is a shorthand reference to Daniel's people, to uh, the Jews. And so the 70th week will start with a peace treaty or a covenant made between the Antichrist and Israel probably doing such things as guaranteeing their safety, bringing peace to the Middle East, allowing them to rebuild uh, the third temple. If you Google third temple, you can even see a uh, video of their plans for the third temple. The Jews are ready, Israel is ready to rebuild its temple. And it's likely that uh, um, the Antichrist will allow them to rebuild this temple. And why do we say that? Well, it says that for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, the Jews are not currently offering sacrifices. Why? Because there's no temple. They could only offer sacrifices at the temple, not in the synagogues, but only the temple. And so that temple would have to be rebuilt for them to resume offering sacrifices. And so I think that third or tribulation temple will be built um, during the first half of uh, uh, the tribulation period. Okay? But then there comes a, a, an event that verse 27 talks about and says, For half the week, so at the midpoint of the tribulation, Something's going to happen where the Antichrist is going to say to the Jews, you can no longer offer sacrifices. And I think what he's going to do is he is going to erect some sort of image of himself in the holy place and demand worldwide worship. And all who refuse to worship him are going to be executed. And this, I think, is going to uh, fit in with the mark of the beast discussed in um, Revelation 13. Okay? And so, in clearing the decks, he is going to uh, get everything out of the way so that the world is left with just him to worship. And uh, that's referred to here as you keep reading in uh, Daniel 9.27. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I think that's a, a reference to uh, um, the second coming right there, an allusion to what will be the second coming. But this uh, abomination of desolation is something that the Lord himself, Jesus himself, spoke about in the Olivet Discourse uh, in Matthew 24. Let's turn over to Matthew 24. And you'll see in uh, 24, 15 and 24, 16 that the Lord says, hey, um, when you see um, 
the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And in doing that, the Lord just confirmed, hey, there was a guy named Daniel, and uh, he lived and made prophecies, and those prophecies were correct. And he says, when you see that being erected in the holy place, then what are you to do? Get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah. Head to the mountains. Okay. And so um, I think uh, the Lord is making a, a, a direct allusion to uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And he says that when this event happens, it's going to unleash the last three and a half years of the tribulation period that are going to be a period of persecution unlike any others. It'll make Hitler and uh, the Holocaust look like uh, child's play. And so um, the Jews are warned to flee at that point, the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay? So we begin the 70th week with this peace treaty, this covenant with many spoken of in uh, uh, Daniel 9.27. We see the midpoint of the tribulation as being referred to as the abomination of desolation, and we see the decreed end being poured out on the desolator as being the Lord's second coming. And that gives us the framework for uh, the tribulation period itself. Okay, I've seen a bunch of hands here, so let me stop and take some questions here. Yours was the first. Um, I think it will be permitted after the third temple. Uh, the, the temple construction will be permitted after the peace treaty. Okay, but right in that same uh, time frame. Okay, yes, sir. Right? No, the church age is what I described as the gap. Okay? It's the thing that happens between the conclusion of the 69th week, the coming of an anointed one, and the beginning of the 70th week, the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. Okay? So the church age, we don't know how long that is because the church age was a mystery. And it will be long enough until all those who are going to believe in Christ um, have a chance to do so. And so the Lord tarries, why? To give more people a chance to believe in him. He tarries because he wants you and all of us to be out there telling others about himself. And he's going to let that go until the last person has believed and been a part of the church. And then he's going to remove the church. There will be no believers on earth as the tribulation period begins. They'll all be gone. So the tribulation will begin with all unbelievers, but God's not done. And even during the tribulation period, he is going to, in his grace, uh, seal 144,000 witnesses to evangelize the world. And it's going to be the greatest time of evangelism the world has ever known in the midst of the greatest time of judgment the world has ever seen. That's the way our God rolls. We are in the church age right now. And we will be until the Lord comes and takes the church home. And uh, we'll look at... Uh, um, um, 
1 Thessalonians 4, um, if we ever get done with Daniel 9, uh, and, and we'll see what it says about uh, the Lord coming to meet the church in the air. Yes, sir. Okay, the mid-trib view simply says that the Lord's coming back at the midpoint of the tribulation. I just don't buy that. It seems like, um, why would he let his bride, the church, go through half of the tribulation uh, and then come get him? Yes, sir. All the believers on earth home. But then the tribulation is a time of great evangelism. So how does that occur if there's no evangelists? Because he seals 144,000 witnesses. This is Revelation 7. And uh, they're sealed to be servants of God. Well, what's the job of a servant of God? To tell others about him. And so they will go out and tell these people that, hey, this is not going to work out well. This Antichrist is not who you think he is. Uh, he is not our friend. You need to believe in Christ, and we need to cry out for Christ to return. Okay? Yes, sir. Probably so. So he's going to have to do something about the Muslim. He's going to have to have a solution to the Middle East problem. And that solution likely will allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. There is a specific spot where they want to rebuild the temple. And they are only going to rebuild the temple on that spot. And that spot currently is occupied. And so something's going to have to happen where um, that uh, is permitted. You know, but that would take the Lord about like that to uh, bring that about. Yes, sir. Yeah, the, well, the Ephesians 3, 1 through 10 uh, talks about the church being a mystery, which means that it was unknown. Okay, so we are, we are the church. All those who believe in Christ now are part of the church. We're not a part of Israel. You know, we're uh, spiritual Israel in the sense that uh, we, we believe in, in God and that we believe that there is only one true God. And we believe that there is only one way to have relationship with him. And how do we do that? Through his son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, uh, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room discourse. Okay? All right. Let's keep rolling. Um, this is the big picture. Okay, and you see that it's also on the uh, flip side of your chart. You see that, and that's a little bit overwhelming. Okay, I, I understand. But we're going to take them one event at a time. And so let's get rolling on that. Uh, it's 1025, that's a great idea. Um, we still have an hour and a half left, so we've got plenty of time to get all 14 events covered. Uh, so let's take about a, uh, uh, what do you think, 10-minute break? Y'all do that? It's time for the rapture. Y'all need to be ready. Everybody in their seats. <laughs> okay, so when is the rapture going to occur? That's what everybody wants to know, right? And what's the answer? No one knows, okay? 
but the fun thing is, is that if we understand Scripture correctly, um, then we know that it is going to happen. And the classic text for the rapture, and I put it here in blue, it'll be a blue letter day for sure. It's not the beginning of the tribulation, but I think it will precede the tribulation in our pre-tribulational view of the rapture. But this is something we hold loosely, okay? We have had people on our stage um, preaching who do not hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? It's not something that we would divide fellowship over. Uh, who's the perfect example who's been on our stage who doesn't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? John Piper. Exactly. You know, I love John Piper. I've learned a lot from John Piper. I disagree with his eschatology. That's okay. You know, he's John Piper and I'm not. Okay? And so, you know, if I was going to put my money on one horse or the other, I'd put my money on Piper, but I just think his eschatology is wrong. But that's all right. You know, I love how uh, he teaches the word. And if you get my uh, book, you'll see I quote um, a couple of his sermons in there at length uh, where he talks about the prayers of the saints and how they're used in the tribulational period. Okay? Uh, but we believe that the, um, the first of the 14 end times events I'm going to talk about will be the rapture, and it will precede that peace treaty. And it will be one in which the Lord will come and remove uh, all of his people. And so there will be no unbelievers, I'm sorry, no believers left as we begin the tribulation period. And I get this from 1 Thessalonians 4. If you have your Bible, open it to 1 Thess 4. And it begins, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Okay? How's that for the ultimate source? Paul's saying, hey, the thing I'm getting ready to share with you, I got straight from Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it could mean that it was simply an unrecorded statement by the Lord during his lifetime. Could mean that. Or it could mean there's scholarly speculation that when Paul is off in Arabia for three years, that uh, um, he may have been going to Jesus' seminary uh, to get straight from the Lord himself an understanding of uh, all these scriptures that Paul had spent his life seeking to understand. And he explained to him, hey, where it says this in the Old Testament, this is what it really means. Not unlike what uh, uh, is included in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a possibility. Um, so uh, we don't know exactly um, how Paul got this, uh, but we do know that Paul describes it as coming straight from the Lord. Uh, so we can take this to the bank. It says, I declare to you by a word from the Lord, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
Okay? You know, if you die, you get to go first. It's only fitting. Okay? And those of us who are left alive, uh, we will follow uh, those who are dead in Christ. And says, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, uh, then that's, and look, he says, we, Paul is obviously expecting himself to be included in this number. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, in other words, with the, uh, the dead in Christ, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, gang, there is our hope. That is a promise right there. Um, and the little words we translate in the ESV, caught up, it's the Greek word harpazo. Uh, it's translated in the, the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, as rapturo. That's where we get the word rapture, caught up. Okay? And if you look at Revelation 12, um, Jesus is actually described as being caught up to heaven. Same sort of idea. Okay? Um, Revelation 12, um, maybe 3 or 4, verse 5, it talks about uh, uh, the son of the woman being caught up to heaven. Verse 5, thank you. Um, it's the same underlying Greek word, harpazo, means caught up. Yes. Yeah, it, it is, uh, can be described as a uh, coming of Christ. He's coming for the church. And one of the best things you can do to um, explore on your own, and remember, we need to be like, who are the ones who were told to uh, examine the scriptures to see if these things are so? We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, okay? They were listening to Paul. Y'all are not listening to Paul, okay? And so you need to really examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. And in doing so, then you have a chance to investigate, okay? This is what 1 Thessalonians describes, I'm sorry, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4 describes as a coming of the Lord. And Revelation 19 uh, describes the coming of the Lord in this manner. And if you put those two side by side, I think you will conclude, as I have concluded, that um, they are describing two very different events. And so um, I encourage you to go do that. Look at them side by side and see if they seem like the same thing. One of the biggest differences is the one you just alluded to, is that in one, Jesus comes physically to the earth. And in the other, it says he meets uh, his people in the air. Okay, two different events, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the bottom line is that uh, uh, both of them are going to be glorious days. 
And that's why we hold our view of things like the rapture and um, even the perspective on the tribulation and things like that. We hold those loosely. We don't divide fellowship over that. Uh, but we put our stake in the ground. And if you notice uh, in uh, the watermark seven essentials, one of the seven essentials is that Christ is coming back in the second coming. That's what Orthodox Christianity has believed uh, for 2,000 plus years. And that's where we put our stake in the ground on the second coming. Okay? And so... Uh, verse 17 again, Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then look at verse 18. I think this is important. It says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, the return of the Lord spoken of as the rapture would be in, uh, encouraging because Paul and others view that as being imminent. He expected it to happen in his lifetime. And imminent really uh, simply means that there is no prophetic event that has to happen before the Lord can come get his church. No prophetic event required. If it's the second coming, there are prophetic events that are required. Like what? Yeah, the tribulation. You got to have seven years of events happening uh, before the Lord comes back in the seven co second coming. So it's not imminent. And if that uh, were the correct view, uh, then we ought to be looking not for the return of the Lord, which we're uh, counseled to do in a number of places in the New Testament. We should be looking for the coming of who? Of the Antichrist, exactly. Okay? But we're told to be on the lookout for the Lord because he, his return is imminent uh, to come get his church where we'll meet him in the air and then we will return and be with him uh, forever. Okay? Um, all right, this is... Uh, um, I wasn't planning to do this. Uh, but go look at uh, uh, John um, 14. John 14 is right in the middle of uh, um, the upper room discourse. You know, the great discourse of the Lord in where he's talking to his guys for the last time. Um, and in John 14, 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's room, there are many, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I uh, am, you may be also. And so here's something for you to do uh, on your own, but put those passages side by side, and you're going to see an amazing number of parallels between John 14 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay? This, here's a little preview. John 14, 1 talks about trouble. Uh, 1 Thess uh, 4, 13 uh, uses the word grieve. Both use the word believe. 
One talks about God and uh, the Lord saying me, referring to himself. And the other one um, in 414 talks about Jesus and God. Um, in 14.2 it says, I told you. And uh, 14, 4.15 says, I say to you. And one talks about come again. One talks about the coming of the Lord. One talks about receive you. One talks about caught up. Uh, one talks about to myself. Uh, one talks about uh, to meet the Lord. Uh, one says, but where I am. And the other one says, um, it says, be where I am. And the other one says, ever be with the Lord. And so if you look at those two passages side by side, just like I encourage you to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19, 11 through 21, um, those are different events. John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 have two different authors using um, almost identical words to speak of what I think you can conclude is the same event. Okay? Yes, sir. Um, Chris, um, I think that's an awesome question. And uh, I, I love the way that you framed it because um, what does it matter? If we're to be looking for the Lord, we're to be looking for the Lord. But that doesn't mean that we won't be around as you see these events start to kind of come together. And it also doesn't mean that you're not going to be talking with people who aren't going to be in the rapture and who will be left behind uh, and have a chance to uh, um, be able to ponder these things and try to make sense of them after uh, the church is removed. And so I think we should be interested in uh, being um, folks who had the ability to read the signs of the time, uh, but at the same time, we're looking for Christ, not the Antichrist. But we, you know, we're called to be um, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And so we need to understand the times that we live in. And as we see these things start to be put into place where it could happen, then, you know, we need to be wise and be motivated to tell others. Well, um, think about um, things like Israel coming together and uh, having its land back and being uh, formed as a nation in 1948, okay? Well, that was obviously an event that needed to happen for these other things to happen. And so we see from that that, well, 1948 came and went and the Lord didn't come back. And now it's been 70 years later, um, isn't that right? Aren't we right on 70 years? Uh, and so um, we want to be wise about that and understand that, hey, that's something that needed to happen. Uh, 
uh, in the sense of being ready for, not the rapture, but being ready for the uh, tribulation and Israel's role in the end times. Um, so I think we ought to be uh, cognizant of events that happen, but not worrying about, well, does this mean? Uh, do all these earthquakes mean that, you know, uh, the big one's finally coming? You know, it could happen. And, hmm? Yeah. We hold all these things loosely except the fact that Jesus is coming back. But it doesn't mean that we don't want to uh, uh, be, you know, cognizant of what's going on around us so that we can help uh, others understand uh, a biblical perspective on what's happening. You? One describes the rapture, I believe, and the other describes the second coming. That's the second coming passage, yes. Okay, and so uh, a second comparison is between John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, and the point is that I think there are a bunch of differences between 1 Thess 4 and Revelation 19, and there are a bunch of similarities between John 14 and 1 Thess 4. So you, you've got two different aims at, in mind. You know, compare the passages uh, fairly, but I think those are the conclusions you'll come to. Uh, two are talking about uh, the same event in uh, 1 Thess and Revelation 19 are talking about two different events. Okay? All right, so the Lord is coming back. He will come for his church, and uh, that event is what we call the rapture. So that's event number one. Here's event number two. We've already talked about it, the peace treaty with Israel. Boom. As soon as that happens, you know that the 70 weeks clock uh, the, uh, has started, the 70th week clock, I should say. The seven-year clock has started running. Okay, everybody with me on that one? I won't spend a lot of time on that, and we'll get back on schedule here a little bit, but uh, that's Daniel 9.27. And remember, Jesus validated Daniel's prophecy in Matthew 24, 15 and 16, where he talks about um, one aspect of that prophecy, the abomination of desolation. And I think, you know, Lynn his credence to the entire prophecy that was given by Daniel. One thing to remember about Daniel is that if you look in uh, Daniel chapter 9, he is described as a man greatly loved by God. Okay? Who wrote the book of Revelation? How was John described? The disciple that Jesus loved. Is it any surprise that probably the two greatest prophecies of the end times are given to two guys that um, God loves greatly. Okay? No surprise there. Yes, sir. So if that's sort of the clock, you mentioned the way we have the, the classic Israel clock, right? I would think so. You know, I'm convinced yeah, uh, I think that's a great observation, you know? Yeah. 
Okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I know who Bill Bright was, obviously. Um, but, um, you know, and the man was an evangelist with a heart to take the gospel to the entire world. Um, you know, um, if he means by that that uh, um, he could hasten the return of the Lord because everybody who's going to believe has believed, um, then maybe so. But I'm not sure about that, Sean. Uh, I would say that, uh, um, um, hey, he's Bill Bright and I'm not. <laughs> so um, uh, Bill Bright was a great man. He, he loved the Lord in a big way. Uh, one of the things Bill Bright did was he prayed for 40 plus years for the Iron Curtain to fall. And, you know, um, in his lifetime, uh, uh, he was able to help be a part of the gospel um, being taken uh, to the uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Okay? Yes, ma'am. That's definitely in uh, um, the uh, uh, Olivet Discourse. Okay, that's right. Um, but one of the things we're going to see that worldwide evangelism will happen in the end times. In fact, is it? No. Actually, it's that one. Okay? Um, so we'll get there in just a second. Seven-year tribulation, we've talked about that. You've got the framework from Daniel 9 that this will be uh, Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period of unparalleled, unprecedented uh, persecution and tribulation on the earth. That's why we call it the tribulation. And sometimes scholars will refer to the last half of it as the great tribulation because that's the 42 months in which Satan will, you know, have his way with the earth. But it will still be within the sovereignty of God. And you'll see even in the judgments that are happening that they happen for a specific period of time. And it's five months. It's not six months. Okay? So God is sovereign, and his sovereignty is uh, not uh, being checked at all by what uh, Satan's doing. Satan is simply being permitted to have this time of the fullness of the Gentiles uh, to uh, rule the earth. It's going to be Satan's heyday, but it's only going to be for uh, the last half of the tribulation period. Okay? Um, all right, so um, worldwide evangelism. And let's look at this. So turn to uh, uh, Daniel, I'm sorry, to Revelation 7. And so you're going to see evangelism during this tribulation period in several different ways. First, Revelation 7 talks about the sealing of 144,000 Jewish servants of God. What's the purpose of servants of God? To tell others about him. And so um, scholars commonly hold to the idea that these 144,000 are being supernaturally protected uh, to... Um, be uh, engaged in worldwide evangelism, okay? 
Now, they're not going to be any different from us. I mean, God, uh, Wagner loves to say this, that, hey, uh, I'm immortal until God's done with me. And the same thing's going to be true in the tribulation period. These people are going to be supernaturally protected uh, to accomplish God's mission. And then when he's done with them, then he'll uh, allow them to be taken home potentially. Okay? Same thing's true of you and me. Now, we can hasten our demise by making stupid decisions. But as long as we are doing uh, what the Lord wants us to be doing, then he is going to allow us to continue because he wants to use us. Um, I like to say that if all you do is to please God, you can do as you please. Okay, now most people hear that last statement, I can do as I please? Well, as long as it's to please God. And uh, um, these uh, witnesses will be uh, protected, they'll be sealed. Um, It means that uh, uh, they're not going to be able to be killed uh, and that God is going to use them to accomplish his purposes of evangelizing the entire world even during this period of great judgment. So that's Revelation 7. I'm sorry? Well, if you read on in Revelation 7, it says that there are 12,000 from each of the different tribes of Israel. Okay? Um, And that, again, will be according to the sovereignty of God. Um, At the same time, he's also going to have other things happening. And if you go to Revelation 11, you'll read about two witnesses. And these guys are going to be the original CNN moment, okay? They're going to have a witness cam, I guarantee you, on these guys. And whatever they're doing and wherever they're going, they're going to be, you'll be able to see them on the Internet all hours of the day and night because they are going to have powers like um, Moses had, like Elijah had. And it leads scholars to speculate, could these be Moses and Elijah uh, brought back? Maybe. Um, Enoch and Elijah, could it be those two? Maybe. Or could it be just two um, Jewish servants of God who were given powers like Moses had, like Elijah had? Um, That also could be a possibility. We simply don't know who these guys are going to be. But it's another way that God is going to have to testify to himself and to call people to believe in him rather than in the Antichrist. Yes, sir. Well, they say that uh, the total is only going to be 144,000, okay? And so, you know, some, somehow the math doesn't work on that one. Yeah, I think it is. Totally inconsistent. Okay? Uh, I think it's a place where you just go, hmm, we don't really have a good explanation for that. Plus, I guarantee you there are more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. Steve? Yeah, I would think so. That they will have uh, believed in Christ or be chosen and you know, have kind of a Paul sort of experience and will be supernaturally sealed and protected. But they will be completed Jews. 
Now, don't think, um, let me say it a different way. This time period is going to be God finishing his dealings with the Jews. So, you know, don't think church. These guys aren't going to be Christians in the sense that the church are in Christ. These are going to be Jews who are, you know, uh, completed Jews who have trusted in the promised coming Messiah. And so remember that that last seven years is finishing God's dealings with the Jews. Okay? Now, the, the, let me finish this thought and I'll get to you. Um, the um, Holy Spirit during the Old Testament was given for specific acts of service and whatnot, not universally given. I think it's likely that um, the Holy Spirit will be working in that same way as we finish the time of the Jews. Okay? Now, if the Lord wants to do that differently, man, I'm good with that. Okay? But I, that's just my best understanding that um, I think that um, this time, this last seven-year period is going to be more like the Old Testament times than like the church age times. And they will be looking forward to a Messiah who's coming. We think it's coming again. You know, whether they think it's again or not, uh, I think they'll ro wise up and realize, hey, this was the guy. And the good news is that even though our ancestors missed him and didn't recognize him, um, he's coming back and we can recognize him. And the 144,000 will be used. These two witnesses will be used. And then I'll get to you in just a second, but also go look at uh, Revelation 14. Fourteen six says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So we've got Jewish witnesses, we've got two witnesses, and now we have angelic witnesses who are going to be evangelizing the entire world. How about that for a showstopper, for an attention getter? Okay, so God's going to be pulling out all the stops uh, to evangelize those who dwell on the earth. And if you pay attention as you're studying through Revelation, the, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is always describing um, those who oppose God. So God is going to be reaching out to everyone, even those who oppose him, to call them to himself. Remember what I said about the lake of fire? Nobody's going to be in the lake of fire who hasn't chosen it repeatedly. Okay? All right, let's keep going. How am I doing time-wise? Um, good. All right. Surprisingly. Um, the central portion of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 16 focuses on three sets of seven judgments each. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Okay? And these will be a, a pouring out of God's final judgment on those who would oppose him. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. And as you think about these, um, there are a couple of different ways of looking at the judgments. First is the recapitulation view. And that simply means that it's 
really just seven judgments, and they're told three different times. They're explained three different times. Okay? Um, that's not the view I hold. I uh, believe in the telescopic view. Um, Dr. Walvard, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Mark Hitchcock, Dr. Ryrie, um, Dr. Pentecost, uh, you know, a bunch of great scholars all hold to the telescopic view. Um, Dr. Toussaint is another one. Um, and that is that the, from the seal judgments come the, bowl, uh, the trumpet judgments, and from the trumpet judgments come the bowl judgments. It's like you're pulling out a spyglass, and one set pours into the next set, and the next set pours into the next set. I think that's a better way of understanding the judgments because, again, if you put those judgments side by side, yes, there are some similarities, but they're also mostly different. And I think they're describing um, three different sets of judgments. And so this central portion of the book of Revelation from 6 to 16 all focus on these judgments. Uh, but there are a couple of principles to bear in mind as you look at Revelation 6 through 16. First is um, just the overriding principle of grace before judgment. God always gives us grace after grace after grace opportunity before he uh, lowers the boom. Okay? And so you're going to see that uh, just in the uh, way that uh, John rolls out these chapters. It actually uh, is preceded by uh, chapters 4 and 5 that focus on uh, a vision of heaven. And chapter 4 is all about the one who sits on the throne, which is a reference to the Father. And chapter 5 is all about the Lamb. We don't need any explanation of who the Lamb is. But then we start with that grace, and then here come the seal judgments because uh, John asked the question, and Revelation contains like uh, about eight or so questions. Uh, who is worthy to open the scroll that was in the hand of him who sits on the throne? And, you know, John's weeping over the fact that no one was found worthy, but then he's told that, hey, but one is worthy. The lamb was worthy to open the scroll and to, you know, roll out the, the seals. Okay? And so um, these um, seven judgments, or three sets of seven judgments each, um, keep in mind the idea that I think that they are chronological, that they are sequential, and that they are intensifying. Why do I say that? Well, they're intensifying uh, because... Um, the sealed judgments are described as impacting a quarter of the world's population. And the um, trumpet judgments are described as impacting a third of the world's population. And then the bowls are the most severe and they hit everybody. Okay, so bear those in mind as you read them. And you'll also see that uh, there are significant uh, similarities between some of the uh, uh, trumpet and bowl judgments and the judgments of Egypt, the plagues of Egypt, okay? It's an interesting uh, uh, sort of study. Uh, but there are um, a number of similarities that uh, cause us to go, well, that, hey, 
you know, uh, what were the plagues of Egypt? Well, um, scholars speculate that uh, they were demonstrating that uh, uh, the one true God was sovereign over uh, the various gods of uh, Egypt. And I think the tribulation period is going to again establish that the one true God is sovereign over uh, all those who would uh, uh, oppose him. Okay, so um, start with the rapture. Begin the clock with the peace treaty. We see it lasts for seven years as Daniel's 70th week. Uh, it's a period of worldwide evangelism where all have a chance to hear and believe. And uh, it is centered around three sets of seven judgments each. And during this time frame, I think it is likely that we will be uh, undergoing uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? So if we're up there with the Lord and we're going to be with him forever, um, what do you think we're doing during this seven-year time frame? I think uh, a, an evaluation is uh, likely what's going to happen. Now, I don't know how that's going to happen. Are we going to be called up one by one? That's going to take a while. Um, you know, the Lord is uh, omnipresent. Uh, or does it seem like we're immediately each within the presence of the Lord and he does it simultaneously? Well, that's not going to take very long, okay? Uh, I don't know how he's going to do it. But what we know is, and let's look at a couple of these passages. Um. Let's start with Romans uh, 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. There's a promise to you. Uh, for it, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, gang, hang on to your hats. That's going to happen. That's Romans 14. 2 Corinthians 5.10 to the same effect. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Okay, do you see anything in there about sin? It's what we've done, you know? We don't do anything for our salvation. But after our salvation, then we have been prepared for what? Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works. Uh, the Greek there simply means that we, it says, uh, for we are God's workmanship. The word really means we are his masterpiece. You know, he views each of us as, hey, this is one of my best works. And, but we are created for good works that we might walk in them, that we were created to do. And I think that's going to be the subject of our evaluation. What did we do after we uh, trusted in Christ? I don't think sins will be an issue. Why? Sins were paid for. Law of double jeopardy. You know, Christ paid for them completely, and we had the benefit of that. And so now he's going to say, you know, to whom much is given... I expect a lot. Parable of the talents. You know, we're not all given the same abilities, okay? As you have already gathered, there's a reason why I'm not up there on Sunday. I am not Todd Wagner. I do not have his gifts. 
but I am responsible for what I have been given, and I need to use those in a way that honor uh, Christ. And so you're going to be evaluated on the abilities and talents and things that you've done, not on the basis of uh, what you might have done if you were someone else. Okay? Everybody with me on that? I used to think about that as something that, oh my word, <laughs> that scares the bejabbers out of me. And I've changed my view on that. And the reason I've changed my view on that is that I now believe, hey, if there's anything in me that is not honoring to Christ, I want it gone. I don't want it to be a part of my life. I want to uh, you know, deal with it and move on so that I can enjoy the fullness of my relationship with Christ. And if I'm smart, I'll do it now and not wait for then. You know, um, I gave this talk to uh, um, our uh, um, student ministries kids at D-Town. And I, I started it by saying, okay, the Lord's coming back next Tuesday. I want you to write on your paper everything you need to change about your life, okay, between now and then. And so what's the right answer? What do you need to change? Nothing ought to be the right answer because you're already doing the things that God is calling you to do, okay? And nothing ought to be the right answer for when we appear before the Lord, okay? That he would say, you know, we're just talking about all the good things, okay? But I don't know about y'all, but I whiff, you know? I have an opportunity to share, to talk about Christ with somebody, and I just whiff, or I, you know... Um, just do things that uh, uh, cause me to lose the opportunity to do the things that God would have me do. You know, I say no when I could have said yes. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. No, they're going. They're part of us. Okay? Um, everyone who is in Christ, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, free, man, woman, uh, anyone who is trusted in Christ is a part of the church. So even though they are eth ethnically Jewish, they're still part of the church. After the church is gone, those who um, come to faith... Uh, we'll be, again, looking forward to the coming Messiah, the one who's coming back. Does that help? Okay. All right. Um, now turn to uh, um, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And this is kind of the classic Bema passage. Okay. 1 Corinthians 3. And verse 10 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Okay, and who's the foundation? And the answer is Jesus. It's always the right answer, okay? Um, Jesus is the only foundation. 
And so Paul is building on that foundation of Christ uh, in his own life and also in the lives of the uh, Corinthians here. It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, the good things, wood, hay, straw, the not so good things, uh, each one's work will become manifest. Notice that. It doesn't say each one's sin will become manifest. Did Paul know how to talk about sin? If he had meant sin, do you think he wouldn't have said sin? I think that's why uh, it's going to be our works that will be examined. Let each, uh, each one's work will become manifest for the day. I think that's a reference to um, the day of evaluation. Um, we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Is that literal fire? Well, no, oftentimes fire in the uh, scriptures is a picture of judgment, of evaluation. Um, it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of sin? No. What sort of work each one has done? If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's the good news. Now here comes the bad news. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Don't stop reading there, though. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't know about y'all, but that's a pretty sobering passage. You know, Paul anticipates that, you know, it's probably likely that we'll each experience some loss at the judgment seat. Nobody's been perfect. Paul would be the first to say that he wasn't perfect. Okay? And so, that's not where we stop. Let me finish this, Hugh. Um, look down just a few verses below. He comes back to the judgment seat in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Gang, that is always the test. It's always about your heart. Not your physical heart, but the heart of your life. You know, what is your motivation? You know, Mike Lester and I here, um, this guy is a walking evangelist, and uh, um, we can do, two, do the same thing. You know, he can go share the gospel with a bunch of guys uh, to make Jesus more famous. And I can go share the gospel with another set of guys to make Bob more famous, you know, to make you think, oh, man, that Bob's really a, he's a neat guy. I want to hang around him. Who do you think's work is going to be burned up? And who do you think's work is going to be rewarded? And it's all about the attitude of the heart. All about the attitude of the heart. Okay, we can't stop there, though. Because then look at that last sentence of uh, uh, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Then each one will receive his commendation, and that's what the Greek word means, commendation from the Lord. And so, um, I don't know about y'all, but man, that chokes me up to think, hey, the Lord is going to find something good to say about each one of us. So that's the good news. 
And as much as I'd want to read uh, verse 15 out that we'll suffer loss, you can't read that out of the passage. And you also can't read out of the passage in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, that we will each receive a commendation. Okay? And so the challenge is we don't live for rewards, but we serve Christ, and he graciously gives us rewards for doing the things that actually will make us happier. How about that? That is good news. And now the question is, what is our heart attitude? All right? Questions? Judgment seat. I'll see you there. I hope you have to go first. You'll probably be, you'll probably be way up there at the front near the throne. And I want you guys to remember those of us who are way just barely in the room. We'll be happy to be in the room. But uh, I want you all to be up near the throne. I want you to be uh, people who say, okay, I'm going to deal with that hard issue right now. I'm going to say, hey, uh, when it would be scary to open my mouth and say, well, but, you know, can I give you, uh, tell you why I have hope in life? Well, when you're going to share with someone at work where you just go, oh, man, this really makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, the Lord's saying, hey, you can do it. And even better, I'll be with you while you do it. And I'll give you the words to speak. All right, that's the judgment seat. Where are we? That makes one, two, three, four, five. We're on number six. All right, number six, things start to get interesting. Um. And there is my abomination of desolation, Mr. Oscar. That's probably an appropriate uh, sign for the abomination of desolation there. Uh, but here's the midpoint of the tribulation, okay? And before I uh, talk further about that, I think it's likely that the sealed judgments will be happening during the first part of the tribulation. Scholars are all over the place on that. That's one, gang, y'all are going to have to figure out for yourselves. Uh, but the whole period is a period of wrath. And I think that actually the um, sealed judgments may be something that the Antichrist uses to consolidate his power and to rise uh, to demand worldwide worship at the midpoint. But it is at the midpoint of the tribulation when the abomination of desolation gets erected um, and we see from Daniel 9, 27, and there's Matthew 24, 15 as well, that there'll be an end to the sacrifices and offering being made in the temple. And God's going to say, hey, you're worshiping a false god there. I'm sorry. The Antichrist is going to say, you're worshiping a false god there. I'm the one true God, the Antichrist will say, and you must worship me. And just to prove it, I'm going to kill you if you don't. Okay, read about uh, that in Revelation 13. Uh, but that's something that's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And it's going to unleash 42 months of the Antichrist rule on earth. Okay, um, Matthew 24, 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
The Lord is saying, hey, this is going to happen, and when you see it, leave. Okay? Um, so that's event number seven. Uh, event number eight is something that we think about as the battle of Armageddon. Okay? Don't think battle. Think campaign. You know, a campaign is a bunch of battles, and it takes a longer period of time. Is this the, you know, last half of the uh, tribulation period? Is it the last six months? You know, we just don't know from Scripture. Uh, but think um, Armageddon campaign. You can read about it in Revelation 16 and also Revelation 19. And um, Fruchtenbaum, in his great work, The Footsteps of the Messiah, um, describes eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. And uh, um, Hitchcock has uh, a similar sort of list, uh, and there is some overlap. But I would say that uh, Fruchtenbaum's list does the best job of uh, uh, blending in the Old Testament passages and Old Testament scriptures in helping you figure out what is going to happen in this Armageddon campaign. And you'll see those eight stages uh, described and discussed in uh, my little um, introductory uh, study guide. Um, so just, you know, in a quick overview, uh, stage one is the assembling. These are all written down in there, so don't write these down. You don't need to because uh, I'm going to go pretty fast. But we see the uh, allies of the Antichrist uh, uh, assemble at the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, which is, you know, a place you, I've visited in Israel. It's a huge valley, and Napoleon called it one of the great um, places for battle in the entire world, okay? Uh, the second one is the, the destruction of political or commercial Babylon. Then you had the fall of Jerusalem. Then the Antichrist comes uh, to southern Jordan and attacks Basra. And then stage number five uh, in Fruchtenbaum's list is something he describes as the national regeneration of Israel. And it's when Israel as a nation cries out for her Messiah to come. And I think, and I describe it as the trigger event of the second coming. When that happens, then the Lord's coming back in stage six. Okay? The stage six is the actual second coming. And you know, Hitchcock thinks he comes and lands uh, on the Mount of Olives. Um, Fruchtenbaum thinks he comes actually to Basra and that he deals with the forces attacking Basra at that point where the Jews have gone uh, to hide themselves, okay? Uh, and then there's a battle from Basra all the way up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem. And then finally, the eighth stage is the victory ascent of the Lord uh, on the uh, uh, Mount of Olives, okay? And uh, um, the, uh, uh, my book, Fruchtenbaum's book, uh, Hitchcock's books, has uh, scriptural references where you can go and read the underlying scriptures to see what you think about those things. Question? Correct. Well, it's... Uh, the nation of the Jews at that point in time. So don't think necessarily the, the folks who, you know, occupied that, the land right then. 
um, you know, all the Jews who are listening um, have already fled at the uh, uh, setting up of the abomination of desolation. And uh, Fruchtenbaum argues that they go uh, to southern, uh, what's actually Jordan now, and in fact may be Petra. Yes, sir. Uh, the forces of the Antichrist are assembled, uh, and they have attacked uh, both Israel, and they have assembled to oppose uh, Christ returning with the armies of heaven. Okay? So it'll be a, the ultimate battle between good and evil. It's not going to be much of a fight. Okay? The armies of heaven are described, I think, in two ways. I think there's an angelic component of the armies of heaven, but I also think that we, as his bride and as his church, will be with him. And the only thing we're going to have to do is stay on the horse, okay? Um, it says that he'll be riding uh, uh, a white stallion and, you know, his armies will be accompanying him, okay? He's going to do all the fighting. He accomplished everything that was needed for salvation, Okay? Well, um, political Israel just refers to the nation of Israel right now, okay? And I think Israel will continue to exist, and it will have a political form even uh, during this time frame. But when you say Israel uh, from a biblical perspective, it's all those who claim the name of Yahweh and who look forward to the, the promised Messiah, Okay? the Messiah who is coming back as we would understand it. Everybody with me on that? Um, so political uh, Israel is, you know, the, the nation that exists today has a land, has a people, and all uh, has a government. Uh, biblical Israel, I think, refers to uh, all those who uh, call on the name of uh, Jehovah, those who have believed in the promised Messiah. Yeah. But they will have a local manifestation in a uh, country that we, today we call Israel. And remember, they are in a portion of the promised land. They just have not expanded to the borders that Solomon realized. All right? Um, second coming, that's the next event. That's stage six of the... Uh, um, eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. And as you think about the second coming, look at uh, uh, Revelation 19 as you do. Uh, I summarized it in five A's. His aim, and it says that in righteousness he judges and makes war. His appearance, uh, it describes his eyes, his head, his robe, his name. His armies, they're arrayed in fine linen. I think that's a, a clue to um, who they are. Uh, I think there's a, both a uh, component of uh, his bride. If you look in like uh, Revelation 9, 19, 6 through 8, it describes the bride of Christ. And it describes that uh, um, bride is uh, attired in uh, fine linen, bright and pure, white and pure. And uh, um, I think those are uh, the, his bride is the church, those who have put their trust in him during the church age. 
and uh, the armies are described in similar sort of uh, um, garb. His authority, the fourth A, uh, it describes his rule and his wrath and his name. And then finally, his achievement is total victory. Okay? Total victory. So the five A's again are his aim, his appearance, his armies, his authority, and his achievement. That's a way to think about uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. All right? And so then the uh, next event after the second coming is the millennium. You can read about that in uh, Revelation 20. And so when does it begin? If you put together scriptures in uh, the end of uh, Daniel, Daniel 11 and 12, um, and I'm happy to talk about this when we get done, if we have some time, uh, but I think there will be a 75-day gap between the second coming and the start of the millennial kingdom. And there's going to be a lot going on that, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So who starts the millennium? Well, there are going to be people who are believers in Christ who have come to faith during the tribulation who actually survived the tribulation period. And I believe that the millennial kingdom will begin with those believers who uh, are still in earthly mortal bodies. And they will be able to marry and have kids and his bride will be done with that sort of thing. And so we will come back and be a part of that, but our job will be to reign with Christ. And uh, um, I think that there will be a repopulation of the earth during the millennial kingdom as kids are born. And if you think about it, um, and you can read about this in my book, but uh, um, the population, the uh, scholars believe that the population of the world, this is from our Census Bureau, uh, if we can trust them, um, they estimate that the population of the world in the year 1,000 was like 300 million people. Okay, And so think about the population of the earth. We have a, probably a better handle on that. In the year 2000, is like 6.8 billion. And so if you, that's in fallen earth and sinful people and all that sort of stuff. Uh, think about what uh, the birth rate might be uh, in the millennial kingdom. It would be dramatically more than that, potentially. Okay, and so I think there'll be a repopulation of the earth uh, during that time frame, uh, but it will be by those people who have trusted in Christ during the, during the uh, tribulation period who are still in their earthly mortal bodies. They're able to marry and have kids. You know, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, that in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be transformed and we will put off mortality and put on immortality as we go to be with the Lord. And so we will be in our resurrected bodies. Okay? You with me on that? Tribulation begins with all unbelievers. Millennial kingdom begins with all believers. No unbelievers. Okay? Hang on to your questions for a second. All believers. Only those who have trusted in Christ. All the unbelievers have been wiped out. Uh, as a part of the second coming or as a part of the judgments we'll talk about in just a second. So uh, I think that the millennial kingdom will begin 
with only those who have trusted in Christ. But because they still have their earthly bodies, that means that they will have an old sin nature still. And that they, I think there will be sin in the millennial kingdom. But there will be a fair, righteous king who will deal with it uh, fairly uh, on the throne in Jerusalem. Okay, you with me on that? Um, that's kind of crazy to think about. But I think it's also why there will be, uh, Ezekiel talks about uh, there being uh, um, sacrifices during the millennial kingdom, sacrifices for sin and things like that. And you're going, no, wait, why? I mean, obviously Jesus' sacrifice was the ultimate. Well, it was, but I think that these will be done as a, a way of maintaining fellowship with him and as a way of uh, memorializing his one perfect sacrifice. You've got to go read those passages on your own in Ezekiel 40 to 48, but it seems to say that there will be sacrifices during this millennial kingdom, okay? Burn offering sacrifices. Um, okay, I'll get to the questions in just a second here. So what will people do during the millennium? Well, I think we're going to see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, and we'll also have a teaching ministry unlike any other. Think about that, okay? And so instead of me teaching Revelation, we're going to have either Jesus or the Apostle John teaching the book of Revelation. Um, you know, um, here's some scripture on that. Um, Isaiah 54, 13 says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Micah 4, 2, And the nation shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jeremiah 3.15 says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. I think there's going to be teaching and there's going to be work. And work is going to be glorious. It'll be work that we were created to do. And it will bring us joy and fulfillment. It will not be a drudgery, but it will be a service to the king, the one true king, uh, as a part of the millennial kingdom. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think that we'll have responsibility in... Um, the millennial kingdom to reign and to serve with Christ and serve him by reigning uh, in his name. It's going to be fun. Um, so who rules in the millennium? Well, obviously the answer is Jesus. It's always the right answer. And all who share in the first resurrection, it says, will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will serve under him and are said to reign with him in Revelation uh, 20, verse 6, okay? And so um, it's going to be a glorious time. Um, now, will there be birth and death in the millennial kingdom? Well, this is one that you've got to be like the Bereans and go see if these things are so. And so I want to uh, challenge you to go read Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 23. And if we have time, and I see we're not going to have time, uh, but go read that because it seems to indicate that people will be born and that they will die during the millennial kingdom. 
Isaiah 65, 20 through 23. Fruchtenbaum's take on that is that in the millennial kingdom, that people who are born will have 100 years to make a decision whether to trust in Christ. And then if they don't decide to trust in Christ, then uh, they'll die. Okay, they'll die without him. And then they will um, be dead to be resurrected uh, to judgment at the great white throne. So check that out. Um, let's keep going. Uh, because it really gets kind of weird here. Uh, in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, um, take a look at that right quick. We have Satan's final rebellion and his final defeat. And so after this thousand-year period when he has been locked up and not able to be out influencing the world to evil, he's going to be set free. Now, why that is, you got to ask the Lord that one because I don't have an answer why, but I know what he's going to demonstrate by it, okay? And so Satan's, the leopard will not have changed his spots in uh, a thousand years, and he's going to come out to deceive the nations like he always does. And look at this. It says in uh, verse 8, the number of those who are deceived is like the sand of the sea. And so here they are living in the millennial kingdom with a perfect king reigning in Jerusalem. And it says that uh, those who will um, reject Christ and follow Satan are numbered like the sand of the sea, a bunch. And so they're going to come and surround Jerusalem, it says, but it's not going to be a very uh, long fight because fire will come from heaven and consume them. And then Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire where he'll join the Antichrist and the Antichrist's false prophet. Um, and then it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yikes. But the principle you need to remember from that is that perfect environment and universal knowledge of Christ will not change human hearts. They still have to make a decision. God's going to be calling everybody to believe in him. Say, believe in my son, but not everybody's going to respond. Remember what I said about the lake of fire? Only those who choose to be there are going to be there. But many will choose to be there. That is sobering. And that takes us to the um, uh, next to last event. Um, actually, a couple more to go. And we'll just do the Great White Throne Judgment and the Lake of Fire together. Okay? Um, and uh, um, as you think about uh, the Great White Throne Judgment, let's get that up there. There's Satan's Final Rebellion, Great White Throne Judgment. You can read about in Revelation 11, uh, 20 verses 11 through 15, and uh, the lake of fire is also described in there. As you think about the uh, um, great white throne judgment, it, for believers only, it said it's for the dead, and only the unbelievers will be dead at that point in time. The judge is Christ. Uh, John 5, 22 says the Father's entrusted all judgment to the Son. The judged are the dead, great and small. That's Verse 12 in Revelation 20. And these are the rest of the dead who did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, the standard is what was written in the books according to what they had done. What does that sound like? 
Sounds like the exact same standard for the judgment seat of Christ. What they had done. Will sin be an issue at the great white throne judgment? I don't think so. I think the issue is going to be, did you trust in my son? And if you didn't, what righteousness do you stand here on? Okay? They'll be judged on their works. And finally, the judgment will be the second death, the lake of fire. And then the last event of these 14 events is the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that you can read about in Revelation um, 21 and 22. I'm going to skip over that one for just a second uh, because I want to talk about these seven judgments right quick. These are judgments that I think will occur um, during the end times and thereafter. The judgment seat of Christ, we've already talked about. We've got that one. Okay? And in this 75-day period I've uh, spoken of, here are uh, four different judgments that will happen during that time frame. The first is that the Old Testament saints, those who died having trusted in the coming Messiah at that point uh, in the Old Testament, uh, will be judged. We'll see a judgment of the tribulation uh, believers um, who had died, tribulation martyrs. We'll see a judgment of the living Jews and of the nations. Uh, the last one, living Gentiles, is sometimes referred to as the sheep and goats judgment. Okay? And uh, um, those who have trusted in Christ will get through that well. And those who uh, have not will... Um, uh, be set aside to be dealt with finally at the great white throne judgment. Okay? So four judgments to happen during that time frame. And then finally, um, at the end of the millennial kingdom, we'll have the final two, the judgment of Satan and his fallen angels. Um, he's headed towards the lake of fire. And then finally, the great white throne judgment. So seven judgments to happen during the end time sort of period. Um, and so what will heaven be like? I, I love these last two slides here. Um, because you see what started in Genesis. And then you see how God brought those to fruition uh, in the book of Revelation. And we see how Satan appears to deceive man, and then ultimately he disappears. We see, you know, the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the night and the seas and all uh, come on the scene, and then we see what happens uh, to them ultimately. And we see how the walk with, man's walk with God is interrupted, and we see how uh, it's resumed. And uh, in Revelation 21, it says that we will dwell with him and we'll be able to see him face to face. And we see how uh, the serpent triumphed initially, but the lamb is going to triumph ultimately. Okay? Um, we see no more curse, no more sorrow. We see dominion restored. We see um, being given the right to the tree of life. We see no more sorrow, no more pain. And the, the big one to me, though, is that 
God will dwell with man, Revelation 21 says, and that we will be able to see him face to face forever. I don't know what else we'll be doing, um, but that will be pretty spectacular. Okay, and so the so what's here are, do you believe this? Does your life say that you believe this? Are you living in light of the fact that um, you are going to see the Lord, that you are going to dwell with him forever, that you are going to have an opportunity to give an account uh, for the hope that's within you and the life that you've lived? You're going to have each one of those things. Um, So is this a way of just kind of scratching an itch, satisfying your curiosity? Or will you live in accordance with and have a heart that's motivated by uh, the opportunity to serve Christ and his people? Um, Are you going to live in accordance with the reality that the end times are going to unveil? You know, I love to tell the story of being uh, um, downtown headed to court. Uh, and, um, you know, 30 years I practiced law. I love to go to court and try cases and whatnot. And uh, so I'm concentrating on something I was getting ready to go do. And, you know, I uh, took a step out thinking that the light had just cleared and the intersection was clear. And this African-American woman grabbed my shirt and pulled me back just as a bus came by at about 40 miles an hour. And, um, you know, I just went, whoa, thank you so much. Um, there is something much worse than a bus coming by at 40 miles an hour, getting ready to hit um, people that we know and love. And so are we going to live in accordance with the reality unveiled in the end times? Uh, or are we going to hold it in to ourselves? I know what the Lord wants us to do. Okay? Um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I hope I see her again and can thank her again because I'll have a different perspective on that. You? certainly think so. Um, I think that's one of the privileges that we'll have in eternity is that, uh, you know, um, we will have the privilege of being able to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, one of the questions of Revelation that's asked is, who can stand? This happens in the sixth seal judgment. They say, you know, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And the answer they get um, in the very next chapter in Revelation 7 is that all those who belong to him will be given the privilege of standing in the presence of the Lamb. That's a goosebump sort of moment. To seek his face? Well, the ultimate seeking of his face is the opportunity to dwell with him forever. 
is what I would say. Question? But during their lifetime, they had, you know, God has said, hey, I'm going to make myself known to everybody. Whether it's the witness of creation in Romans 1 or through the sharing of the gospel and the idea of worldwide evangelism, I don't think anybody's going to die and able to say, I never heard that. And so there has also been something within them, a conscience that says, hey, there's right and wrong. And if there's right and wrong, then there must be one who is right. And uh, so, uh, you know, and that's obviously over on God's side, that um, if he is just and fair, which Scripture tells us repeatedly that he is, then he is going to do the just and fair thing by everybody. And that all will have had an opportunity to hear uh, about him and an opportunity to believe in him and that, you know, some like Pharaoh will have repeatedly, despite having numerous opportunities, will have said no and said no and said no, even to the point where they are no longer capable of saying yes. And God says as a judicial matter that, hey, I'm turning you over uh, to your own hard heart. And it said that the Lord hardened his heart. That's a question for a different day, too, uh, to talk about that. Um, All right, so the very last thing, and I've got uh, two minutes, um, I want to do is, can we put these in order without looking? Okay, come on, I think we can. All right, so what's number one? All right, Uh, what's number two? I agree. What's number three? Yeah, we feel pretty good about that, too. What's number four? Yeah, that's what I would put. Uh, But obviously, you know, judgment seat, um, those sorts of things, uh, it's hard to say. But I'd put uh, worldwide evangelism number four. What's number five? Yeah, the the judgments. I think they start early and they go late. Um, Then six? You could put the abomination of desolation. I'd probably run the judgment seat in there because I think that's going to take some time, Um, maybe. Um, You know, however the Lord wants to do it, it's okay with me, okay? And uh, um, number seven? Uh, I heard it over here. I think the abomination... That's the midpoint. We know that that's happening. We know when that's happening. So I kind of put it right in the middle. Um, And so after the abomination of desolation, I heard somebody say it over here, Armageddon campaign. Okay. Then what? Second coming. coming, Yeah. After the second coming comes millennium. After the millennium comes before the great white throne judgment. Satan's final defeat, then the great white throne judgment, 
And then uh, number 14. Uh, yeah, 13 is lake of fire, and 14 is new heavens and new earth. Question over here? I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. All right, here, I'm going to give them to you just in order. All right, number one, rapture. And as I say, you could move some of these around, definitely. Um, number two, peace treaty. Number three, tribulation. Okay, those are pretty solid as being the first three things to go on. Number four, worldwide evangelism. I think that'll go throughout the period of the tribulation. Number five, seals, trumpets, bowls. Number six, judgment seat. Again, you know, got to put it somewhere. Uh, I'm assuming uh, it is in there somewhere. Number seven, uh, right in the middle, abomination of desolation, the midpoint of the tribulation. Number eight, Armageddon campaign. Number nine, stage six of the Armageddon campaign is the second coming. Number 10, the millennium, millennial kingdom. 11, Satan's final defeat. Right there, Revelation 20. Great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. That's number 12. 13 is lake of fire, and 14 is new heaven, new earth. Hey, gang, y'all have asked some great questions, and there is nothing I like better than uh, having a chance to talk about, study uh, the end time sort of stuff. And so um, you've got my email address. If you have questions uh, that I can answer by email, I'm happy to do that. If it needs a longer conversation, I'll meet you at Watermark Coffee and I'll even buy you a cup of coffee and we'll talk about the end time sort of stuff, okay? And so um, don't let your questions be unanswered. There are no dumb questions uh, about the end times. Um, why? Remember that blessing I talked to you about uh, at the beginning? That you will be blessed by obeying, by keeping, by heeding the words of this prophecy uh, John writes about the book of Revelation. So y'all have been a blessing to uh, have a chance to dive into this stuff together. And uh, um, if you have questions and I can help you, I'd love to do that. If you want a copy of uh, uh, my uh, little study guide, um, it's got big print and it's got a lot of pictures, okay? And But it's about 180 pages, so um, it'll give you something to uh, sink your teeth into, okay? So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for um, this group of friends. Thank you for um, the bond we share in your son. Thank you for the confidence we have that he's coming back. And so, Lord, uh, it's my humble prayer that you would just blot from their minds anything I said that was wrong, uh, anything that I said that uh, did not honor you, uh, but that you would cement in their minds the things that uh, point to your son, the things that uh, affirm that he is coming back, and the things that will help them uh, be a testimony to 
uh, who the lamb is and how the lamb has changed each one of our lives. So thanks for this time. Thanks for uh, their willingness to devote a Saturday morning to this. And may your hand of blessing and favor and protection be on each of them. Amen.